Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. The United Kingdom is a great country. Never, never been a good bet to bet against America. Hi, hello, welcome. This is Mid-Atlantic, where today we're diving deep into the heart of American politics with our special guest, Hunter Walker. Hopefully he'll join us, but we definitely do have Lupe Lupin with us. These veteran political journalists have authored The Truth, Progressive, Centrist and the Future of the Democratic Party, a compelling narrative that chronicles the Democratic Party's turbulent journey from the 2016 election to the present. Today we explore the book's revelations about the party's internal struggles, the rise of key political figures and the dramatic events that have shaped its course. Expect an in-depth discussion on the future of the party and its leadership. Lupe, welcome. How did Deb lie today, sir? I'm doing good. I'm really appreciative of you having me on. This is such an interesting format and excited to, to talk with you about, about the Democratic Party. And I think in terms of comparing it to British politics... I can only really be an amateur. I try to watch and I, I try to understand what's going on. But it, it is, it, there are fascinating parallels. I think a lot of the progressives we cover who were excited about Bernie Sanders were equally excited about Jeremy Corbyn, especially early on in, in his career. And obviously, J- Jeremy Corbyn had a different trajectory than Bernie Sanders and that he did become leader and then had the real challenges in holding together his coalition. And now, obviously, you have a different labor leader coming. I'm very excited for the discussion and and grateful to be here. We did briefly talk before we started about the differences between the Democratic Party and the Labour Party. And obviously the two parties are somewhat analogous. I think the Labour Party, in in terms of where it sits on the political spectrum, is further to the left than the Democratic Party. However, they inhabit the same space in each country's political spectrum, both left of centre. I think One of the fascinating things for me is how the Democratic Party does its horse trading so much in public. It's much more transactional. So hopefully we'll get some of those themes going into our conversation. But first off, why did you and Hunter decide to write the book? It's a great question. We actually met covering 
aspects of the sort of Trump phenomenon. I was down in DC. I'd, I'd been a corporate lawyer for a long time, but was down in DC working on a different project. And I had a, a morning free and I went across the river, across the, the Potomac to Alexandria, where Paul Manafort was being tried in his first federal trial just to watch the courtroom proceedings. And Hunter was there covering it for Yahoo News. And he had, had this idea that I should write about it for Yahoo News because I am a, an attorney and know a few things about what's going on. And so from that beginning, our sort of writing partnership was forged. And we covered all sorts of aspects of Trump's legal troubles from these various federal prosecutions to his impeachment, his first impeachment. And Hunter was, uh, was actually at the Capitol on January 6th, covering that on the ground. And I think over the course of about a year, two years of doing that, we realized that there was this whole other world that wasn't really being covered because Trump's magnetism, at least in U.S. politics, is so intense. He draws the lens and the spotlight away from the Democratic Party entirely. And we didn't really understand early on in the process how the Democratic Party was doing, what it was doing. How does Joe Biden end up consolidating the party in this sort of rapid fire weekend after the South Carolina primary and sweeping Bernie Sanders aside and taking the nomination and then going on to defeat Donald Trump. And we thought that was a really interesting question to try to dive into and to understand by talking to as many people as we could. And we interviewed hundreds of operatives and elected officials and voters and, and party officials and other people who are involved in, in the Democratic side of politics to try to get our arms around what's been happening in this party and what its major sort of themes and currents are. And what we think the the best answer is that there was this huge rift in the Democratic Party. In some of our book, we do go back to 2008 and we talk about the long primary between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. But really, we think the sort of major fracture is 2016, where Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders face off in the primary. And they also have a really long battle that takes it into June. They've got all these disputes over primary delegates, Michigan and Florida, and it carries into the convention. There's still ill feeling in the party in the convention. And in the general election, you get a lot of young voters and more progressive voters essentially sitting out from what the data shows us. And we think that contributed a great deal to Trump's victory. And it also contributed to galvanizing Democratic leaders to try to make sure it didn't happen again. Uh, we report a lot on what Obama did as a result of that 2016 election to unify the party. And that's the truth we're talking about, is trying to stitch together this coalition that really disagrees on so much, but that does see Trump as a threat. How, how pivotal truly is 2016 to 2020 in terms of the truce? Because if I look back, at let's say the last 50 years of the Democratic Party, and this question for you, Hunter, the liberal wing, the progressive wing of periodically fought 1968 Democratic Convention and then had truces. So is this something which is just endemic in democratic politics, the two factions vying for supremacy, and then one of them then going, okay, here's an accommodation because we either have the reins of power or we need to reorganize whilst we don't have the presidency? Hunter. And that's a really great question. And I think you've essentially asked two different ones, so I'd like to break them down. The first one, you were saying, how important is 2016 to 2020 in terms of making this alliance? And I think that was the period when the stage was set for it, but it was very much a moment when the rift was still active. Essentially, you saw 
the most pronounced fissure develop in the party in 2016, in that uh, bitter primary between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. And the aftershocks of that continued through some of the House insurgencies we saw, notably Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the rise of the squad, and we chronicle some of that in our book as well. But those were very much like the Clinton and Sanders contest, battles between establishment Democrats and the Sanders progressive wing. So the fight was really still raging in 2020. You had Sanders challenging Biden, Biden running as an outspoken moderate in opposition to the Sanders agenda. And then I think what we chronicle in our book is how almost counterintuitively Biden both, I think, governed more progressively than those on the left might have expected, but also he worked behind the scenes. I mean, these calls with Obama that Lupe is talking about, and then also calls with uh, figures on the left, the unity task forces where the Biden campaign actively worked together with Bernie Sanders and AOC on the first term apology, a bridge that was built that we talk about in the book between Biden's first chief of staff, Ron Klain, and Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, who's the chair of the Progressive Caucus, where they also worked together on policy. And it created a dynamic where, you know, paradoxically, even though Biden had been a staunch moderate, the progressives ended up being his closest allies in the first term, whereas it was what we called the radical centrists, your Joe Manchins, your Kristen Sinemas, your Josh Gottheimers, who threatened his agenda. So really, the truce took effect after 2020. But then I want to get to that other part of your question, because I think it was just such a smart observation. Is this type of discord endemic in the Democratic Party? And I think, first off, it's important that we have a piece of context, which is, as we talk about any disunity and discord among the Democrats, it's just a completely different tone and level than what we see in the Republican Party. And what I mean is, when we're talking about issues in the GOP, we're talking about unprecedented legal trouble for their standard bearer. We're talking about their supporters violently breaking into the Capitol and calling for their own vice president to be hung. That's a level of that's a level of drama and disunity we simply don't see on the Democratic side. At the same time, we do see these fissures remaining even after Biden's work to build the truce. And that's where I would start to point to Gaza, which is almost an issue uniquely suited to blow up the coalition that Biden did all of that delicate work to build. You have there was just an article in the Times that the Black Church is really pressing Biden specifically on this. And they're ringing the alarm that their voters might not come out. And any dip in the black vote is just a, a crucial crack in Biden's base. We're seeing this with other communities of color, the Arab American community. And we're also seeing this with young voters who are in some polls indicating that nearly three quarters of them don't support Biden because of what's happening with Gaza. And young people and people of color are the core of the Obama coalition that Democrats have been able to use to transcend Republican electoral college advantages. And particularly young people are a group that has been the progressive base that Biden was able to bring in through these alliances. And it's just not clear that he will be able to do so going forward. And I think all of this gets at what you were talking about, which is that the Democrats are a diverse party. And when you have a diverse party, that cares about small d democracy rather than a white authoritarian party like we're seeing on the Republican side, unity will necessarily be harder to pull off. So it goes to the core of the essence of this show, this podcast, the issue of Gaza 
is a running scene through the Labour Party at the moment, that we have Keir Starmer, the leader, who's taking a very traditional British politic view. We support Israel, whereas we there were in, in the first two weeks of the Israeli invasion, there were many Labour councillors who resigned the party whip in the UK, and this is a, a running fissure within the Labour Party. But I want to come back to how central in the book Biden seems to be. This truth could it only really be accommodated through Biden? Could Hillary Clinton had done the outreach to the progressives in the way that Biden has? It's a great question, um, and one that you know I think in some ways is maybe unanswerable. In that there, you can always think of a hypothetical Hillary Clinton that might have been more capable than the actual Hillary Clinton we saw on the trail. But I think what we see about Biden, to start to answer the question, is that he comes from a very traditionalist place. In, in his early career, as Kamala Harris been quite famous, he has a lot of accommodating tendencies toward the old Southern Democratic Party, the more racist Democratic Party that was that was still standing up for segregation in a way and had relationships with those older senators. Even as we come to 2020, one of the things we report in the book is a conversation Biden apparently had with Andrew Cuomo, according to sources close to Cuomo, where he talked about the 2020 race and he said, we can't both run. Andrew Cuomo, also a very centrist figure, the governor of New York for a long time, someone who is very much an old line Democrat and not really a friend to progressives. And what Biden said to him was, if we both run, we're going to split the vote on our side of the party and some nut will get the nomination, most likely referring to Bernie Sanders. And then as the 2020 race proceeds, you do see Biden, and I think Obama's influence has to be mentioned here, working to accommodate and fold progressives into his campaign and developing as a general election candidate the most progressive platform that Democrats have ever run on. And as president, his first two years working with progressive allies on the Hill, they were really his most steadfast allies in the Congress. And their the thorn in their side was these radical centrists like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, who were almost aligned with Republicans in their positions. And it's Biden and the progressives trying to push through major things that progressives have wanted. They didn't get them all, but they got some. And the, so Biden, I think, legitimately has a claim to being a quite progressive candidate and quite progressive president, but he comes from a place that's very similar to Hillary Clinton in his centrism and traditionalism, his sort of his mainstream democratic politics. So I do think you need a figure like Biden who's able to step out of that tradition and adopt a more progressive orientation and be willing to work with progressives as his main allies in order to forge a coalition like this. And I don't think Looking at Hillary Clinton's career, that was something she did very well. If I could just pipe in there, because I think that that was such a cool question, and it gets at something that was like a bit of a, a bit of a fascination of mine. And I've been out on the campaign trail for a couple of these last cycles. I've got my New Hampshire diner mug right here. It was hard earned. And in 2016, I remember watching this discord, watching these protesters spilling into the DNC and onto the convention floor in their neon shirts. And thinking that Hillary could easily have quelled this a bit more, right? And the one thing that was always in my head, my sort of West Wing alternate history scenario, if you will, uh, it's a 
TV show over here where they often have a little more far-fetched and TV-dramatized uh, political solutions. But I always thought that Secretary of Education Bernie Sanders was the answer for Hillary Clinton. Part of what made Bernie Sanders and his progressive wing so popular with the youth was uh, their position on student debt and free public education. And she largely adopted that. So why not bring him into the fold, right? And I think that path was there for Hillary. She chose not to take it. And Joe Biden is just a fundamentally different politician stylistically than Hillary Clinton. As Lupe was alluding to, he is a veteran senator who's like Lyndon Johnson, had this reputation as just a consummate deal maker in Congress, for better or worse, perhaps, when it came to the segregationists. And he brought that approach to his campaign. And we actually saw him do the exact thing that Hillary Clinton wouldn't. Bernie Sanders told us in the book that he was offered, essentially, to be Secretary of Labor and almost would have done so if the outcome of the races in Georgia didn't suddenly make his Vermont Senate seat, because there's a Republican governor there, crucial to the Democrats' very slim majority. So Biden specifically did the outreach and addressed the tensions in a way that Hillary Clinton didn't. And I think you're seeing it as much as it is threatened by those divides over Gaza and as much as it is a fragile truce, you're seeing it pay dividends. The last thing I just want to pivot off something Lupe said, I think a really interesting part of this whole conversation is that no one owns the definition of progressivism in the U.S., right? And Hillary Clinton would say she's a progressive. I came out of covering New York politics. And in the 2012 presidential campaign, I remember being down in North Carolina and Andrew Cuomo, who had his own presidential ambitions, had a sign saying, New York, the progressive capital of the nation, right? Fast forward almost 10 years, and he's calling the progressive wing, quote unquote, nuts and actively fighting them in Albany, the capital of New York, and becoming their bete noir and completely working against them. So I think Cuomo is a vivid example of how those tensions worsened from that period you were talking about, 2016 to 2020. And then Biden really took the approach that none of these other Democrats did and tried to bring it together. But it's a really tall order. And I think if people read the book and they understand the work that was done behind the scenes, but also how deep these fissures are, as you were pointing out, going back to the 60s, it really sets the stage for what a unique and interesting challenge 2024 is going to be. It's maybe a, a better word to really describe this. It's politicians who are institutions in the party and those who are newer. You have Alexandra Cassia cortez and the squad, and they're newer there's also a generational divide. It seems to me that really what we're talking about are institutionalists and those who are newer in, into the party. And, and that's the, really the divide. And yes, Bernie Sanders is the outlier in that regard. Interestingly, like Bernie Sanders always has had this relationship with being a Democrat. It's very strange. He's always leaving the party and being an independent. I mean, he ran for the Democratic nomination and then went back to being an independent so I think your point is well taken that he's not, he, Bernie Sanders has deliberately kept the institutional Democratic Party at arm's length. I'm going to throw this out to the audience straight up immediately because like, there's so many more smarter people who are really dyed in the wool Democratic Party kind of operatives than me, the dilettante guy from Britain who just gad flies into your country for six months of the year and then gad flies back out. If you do have a question, you're in the audience, air with my good friend, go for it. The stage is yours. 
Hey, nice to meet you. Didn't know about your book. Very curious about your book now, for sure. I'm some level of an insider, kind of on the fringe of that. I work in democratic politics at times. And there's two sets of forces that I haven't heard you talk about yet. And I'm curious what you think about this. Maybe it's in your book and you haven't summarized all however many three-digit pages this book is in the, the 20 minutes I've been on the call. But the first one is the success of progressives to make their policies really popular. Like progressive organizers have turned issues that were marginal into issues that are dominantly popular, right? Student loan debt is a good example that you just brought up before. Uh, universal health care is barely a question. It's really just a question of how rather than whether we should do that or not. There's a number of these. Climate is another good example that's gotten much more popular. I don't know if that's organizing as much as it is. <laughs> so I think that's one. And I think the other one is that the Speaker of the House at the time was always to her party's left and governed by basically trying to advance what could pass, doing what was there to be done. And so as she got a more progressive body, she was willing and able to shift things in that direction as well. And so I'm just curious what you think about, A, the success of progressive organizers to, to mainstream their ideas, and two, the role of Nancy Pelosi in negotiating this truce, to use your word. Thanks so much for the question. And I think you are getting at something that is really a, a central theme of our book. And I know I came on here a couple of minutes late, so I apologize if, if Lupe already touched on this, but essentially uh, there was just this avalanche of reporting on Trump during his rise. I was certainly part of that. I was a White House correspondent throughout his administration. I, I recognized the unique import of covering him. Part of his unique ability to take all the oxygen from the room resulted in a world where we literally had articles about what soda he was drinking, and there just wasn't similar coverage of the Democratic Party. And in the book, we really do try to go into a lot of depth. As we were alluding to before, the party is far more diverse than the Republicans. We try to cover the full spectrum from your Democratic Socialists of America on over to your Joe Manchins and your Andrew Cuomos. And I think throughout, there's a really interesting question that you're touching on, which is that the U.S. is a liberal country by and large, right? That's why Democrats have won almost every popular vote in the past eight elections, right? And these policies, these progressive ones, Medicare for all, free public education, canceling student debt, uh, e even climate change and, and gun control, uh, this stuff is broadly popular. And yet the result doesn't often match that. We've had two Republican presidents in this period, one of whom was quite far right, uh, at least one. <laughs> we are not seeing the progressive agenda that is so popular pass. And so I think we really dig into that in detail. And the two obvious answers are the Republican structural advantages. And I think often when you see horse race political coverage, this just doesn't get touched on. And the big ones are the Electoral College, obviously, and then also the Senate itself, which affords as many senators to Wyoming and North Dakota, these sparsely populated states, as it does to California and New York. And it affords zero to the District of Columbia, which is more populated than several other states. So these are really baked in structural advantages. But in addition to that, when we saw this sort of new Sanders era progressivism, we really dove deep on this in New York in particular, where two of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's closest allies, Alessandra Biagi and Yulene New, 
were just not able to replicate her success. And we found that they ran into a few things, which were, number one, Republican dark money, number two, establishment Democratic money, right? And then number three, a failure among progressives to consolidate behind any one candidate. And I think essentially progressives find themselves fighting a two or three front war on the policy level or and on the campaign level that kind of prevents their wins electorally, electorally and on the policy front that people might otherwise support. And the way this played out, the DSA, when it came time to endorse Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they weren't even universally behind her. So we report in this book, she only had one of the two branches she needed for her district backing her. And there were real questions about whether they should be running on the Democratic line at all. When Yulene New ran, she was in a district that had three progressive candidates, and they couldn't do what Biden, Cuomo, and Obama did and negotiate behind the scenes and pick one horse going forward. Um, so these things are problems, and it's been an issue for progressives. Uh, as far as your question about Nancy Pelosi, I think that goes back to what I was saying before. She unquestionably sees herself as a progressive, and there's a lot of reason for that. As you point out, she's at many points been to the left of her party. But I think the squad, and we chronicle this a bit in her book, saw her as a bit of an antagonist in their rise, right? So I think this gets back to the central dynamic that Roy Field was touching on earlier, which is that in this diverse party, ideologically and demographically, unity really can be a challenge. And I think that's part of why we don't see consolidation in the same way that we do in a more authoritarian right-wing party, where everyone's really in line behind Trump. We see that in the result of this primary, the Republican primary. And we also see it in the candidates who are losing, immediately getting up and endorsing Trump, even after he said just brutal things about them. And Democrats can't do that, and they can't even agree on what progressivism is. And I think that was perhaps best encapsulated in our interview with Bernie Sanders, where he told us, you say the left, I don't even know what that means. And we cover that conversation in depth in the book, but it's, it was just extraordinary to me because this man who's essentially one of the few unifying figures in the party, widely recognized as the leader of a new left, is admitting that definition isn't really settled. So what we see by and large in America is this identity crisis nationwide where our order is threatened by Trump, our social order, our democratic order, and then an identity crisis within the opposition to that. And it's really just compounded to make this an extraordinary time in our politics. And I think that's why we felt that half the story was being untold and we had to change that. Great question. If anybody else has got a question who's in the audience, now is the time to raise your hand and get in. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Q. Now it's time for me to do a, a little bit of housekeeping. It's an advert. If you listen to this podcast and there's a goodly few thousand of you downloaded every month for the love of all things holy, please go on to Apple Podcast and write us a review. It will help get more listeners to the podcast. Also, we now have a, a YouTube channel. It's brand new. Go over there and uh, please subscribe, Mid-Atlantic Podcast, and you'll see the long-form interviews that I do. Not the panel shows, which happen on a weekly basis, but interviews like this. If you want to see what exactly I'm wearing today or what fake background I've got behind me and you want to see how coiffured, how suave and sophisticated the guests are, head over onto YouTube. That's a great way of really supporting the podcast. And this week, we have not only these two excellent authors who wrote this book about the truce, the Democratic Party and its various coalitions, but also we have a, a phenomenal guest this week, Friday, where he's going to be also up on YouTube, Professor Kahidi from Beirut University, who's coming to talk about the future of Palestine, what happens when the Israeli guns then go silent. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. That will be on the podcast, but also what I do when we have these long-form interviews, I in include video clips and other bits and other media assets, which you don't get in the podcast. So go on to YouTube, please join. And if you want to be in the audience, quite simply, all you have to do, go to royfield.com, hit the top right button, it says sign up, gets you onto the newsletter where I put all of these links. Steve Crone, my good friend, the floor is yours. I wonder if you could focus for a minute on the generational aspect of all of this. As the parent of four kids between 18 and 29, I'm really focused on the different perspective of that generation from my generation. I'm about to turn 60. How all of these dynamics change as those voters become a, a bigger part of the Democratic Party or not, I guess. Absolutely. It's a great question. And it's a question that we've learned from our reporting is something that Barack Obama is still focused on. We spoke as part of the rollout for the, this book with, with some folks in his world. And it is the, what they think will be the key question of 2024 is whether young voters can get involved and whether how the Democratic Party can appeal to them, or if it fails to appeal to them, what happens? And that is, it was also the subject of this speech that we found Obama gave to young lawmakers back in 2019, right after the Democrats had recaptured the House in the middle of Trump's first term. They gathered at this mansion in the Colorado neighborhood of D.C., this sort of mega donors mansion. And behind closed doors, Obama was speaking to them about trying to figure out how to reach out to younger voters and more progressive voters. Uh, and it, what he said with the lessons of his campaign was to not simply gesture toward them, but to actually make them feel listened to and empowered 
He said that his campaign in 2008 had given young people a significant amount of autonomy to go into their particular region or district or whatever jurisdiction they'd been assigned to listen to the voters there and to try to figure out a campaign strategy to implement and then just let let the headquarters know what it would be. Um, you can, whether you believe that or not, people may differ, but that is what he said to the lawmakers. And it's something that I think they, they took to heart. And there's a lot of focus right now on what what young people are are thinking and there's in polls it really does seem like they're a far more progressive generation than we've seen before and they are obviously their part in the coalition is under a lot of tension from from this war in gaza and from biden's foreign policy in general this sort of the borders of the war where we have strikes in yemen but probably have some further business coming with Iran after the strike in Jordan over the last few days. And there's, it's, it is tough for me to bring out a crystal ball because I don't actually own, but I, I do think that with the focus that senior leaders in the Democratic Party have on young people and what appears to be young people's tremendous dissatisfaction with the direction of the Biden administration's foreign policy right now, I do think you will see some movement as the party tries to appeal to them. What that movement will be is tough to forecast, but I think it is top of mind from what we can tell amongst Democrats who are thinking about the upcoming election and how to plan for it. And if I could just pipe in here, because this is really one of the central questions facing the Democratic Party right now. Lupe and I talked to sources close to Obama who said he views young voters as the whole ball game for 2024. And we did uncover this really extraordinary private speech he gave in, in, in 2019, the height of the Trump administration that you can read in the book, where he frames this as one of the biggest challenges for the party. And what he specifically says is that young people don't always go out and vote. So as we were talking earlier with Aram about that sort of paradox where Democrats have the majority, but they don't always get the victory, a big part of that is youth engagement. And the fact that young people are not engaged. And I, too, am always loath to get into punditry and predictive politics. You'll find this book is deeply reported. It's based on hundreds of interviews with figures at every level of the party. This is not sort of me and Lupe doing our opinions. So I, I don't like to pull out the crystal ball. But what I will say is I think on a couple fronts, we do see Joe Biden. Obviously, we see in the polls that he's struggling with young voters. But we see this also in a more concrete way, because in the sort of earlier part of this campaign over last year, they tried this quote unquote Bidenomics message, right? And it was just a political loser. It did not work in the polls. And you saw, and Lupe and I heard behind the scenes, Democratic operatives expressing frustration like, oh, the economic indicators are good and dismissing the concern people felt about their economic status as the term that got popular here was vibe session. The idea that people felt bad vibes, but it wasn't real. And I think that was really a dangerous position for Democrats to take because the reality is we see by and large young people feel less job security. They have higher housing costs. Inflation is rising. So this was more than just vibes. And I think Democrats saw that dismissing the concerns of that generation was not effective, right? Uh, and they pivoted away from that. The Gaza situation is much more in flux. We see young people expressing that they're not happy with his position. Uh, and right now, uh, I think he's still broadly sticking with it. 
What really strikes me as interesting is that in 2008, you saw Barack Obama build this coalition, get historic turnout among young people. And people forget this. Obama really won in 2008 as an anti-war candidate, both relative to Hillary and obviously relative to his predecessor, George W. Bush. And I feel like in the Biden years and in the Trump years, the Democrats are ceding the anti-war lane to the Republican Party. Donald Trump is essentially the guy who began the pullout from Afghanistan, ended the war in Iraq. And it really hit me the other day when I was getting this press release from Trump blasting Nikki Haley as a warmonger. And then you have Joe Biden and we are expanding our presence in the Middle East. We're expanding military operations in Africa. And I think that's going to be another thing to watch in 2024, particularly with regards to the youth vote. The youth have had it with this notion of endless wars. And Trump seems to get that better than Biden. And and we can argue about whether he changes anything on the policy front. We had 36 military operations in Africa during the Trump administration, but he does at least talk the game of being an anti-war president. And he did just set in place the mechanism to leave Afghanistan. It, it, it's, it's totally a, a fair comment. And again, great analogies with, with UK politics in that Jeremy Corbyn completely got out the youth vote in 2017. So much so that UK rappers were doing legit raps about Jeremy Corbyn. There's a football chant, oh, Jeremy Corbyn. And, and it's one of the key reasons why he confounded the opinion polls. A young voter apathy is something we see very much on our side of the Atlantic also. Aram, I know you wanted to ask another question. Sure. Just because you're talking about the young people, the Biden approach to young people is indicative of something that the Democratic Party learned. I was a college senior and a film student in Boston in 04 and went up to New Hampshire and shot a, a 45 minute documentary about that primary there and watched the Deniacs and all these young people like me at that point who were on the street corners and just doing the hard work. And if you look at the youth turnout, that cycles like seven straight primaries where they I think doubled or more in terms of youth turnout. And the Democratic Party did this sort of thing that it did for a long time, which was where the hell else are they going to go? We don't need outreach to them because they're going to they're going to come home. Right. That come home language is something that you still hear to, today from people letting her maybe not as good at what they do. But particularly after Hillary, I think there was a lot of outreach by the Democratic Party. In fact, I know that there was. Now, Biden, for example, just chose Heather Booth, who's an absolute legend in the progressive movement to be his progressive outreach director. Eve Levinson is his youth director who is comes out of the March for Our Lives movement and is another just outstanding choice to reach out to progressives that might be shaky and someone who's been reaching out to young people since Parkland in, what, 18, I think it was, or 19 maybe? 2018, yeah. So I think that one of the things that Biden doesn't maybe get enough mainstream credit for is uh, the behind the scenes working with organizers. So the organizers who might've been working against him in the way that I would say more people were organizing against Hillary or potentially just depressing turnout for her. He made a really concerted effort. I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit more about some of the behind the scenes on the reaching out to the movement, whether that was the immigration table or, or whatever, right? Just that sort of constellation of organizations that does a lot of the work the Democratic Party. Absolutely. And I think one really good example of that in our book, you know, we talk about how the 
how the student debt issue was addressed within the Biden administration. Uh, one of the major activists uh, on the progressive side of that issue was Melissa Bernie, who the Biden administration really bent over backwards to reach out to from our reporting. They were including her on messaging calls, which if you're I'm sure you're familiar, Aram, uh, with how messaging calls usually go. You get on the conference call, and at least as I understand it, you receive the message that the administration wants to get out there, and, and that's mostly the story. But Melissa's an activist, and she was getting on these calls lobbying Ron Klain and rob lobbying the other members of the Biden administration to change their policies. And from what we understand, she had a real effect on pushing that issue forward and getting Biden to lean as aggressively forward on student debt relief as he has. It's obviously been a, is still a fraud issue, one that's held up in the courts all over the place. And there, as you see every other week or so, there's a new set of uh, student debt that Biden tries to cut. It, it is all still, it's all still very much mediated by what's actually going to get, what, what relief is going to get through and what relief is going to be stopped in the courts. But the Biden administration orientation there, I think, from what we understand, is very much informed by bringing activists from the progressive side to the table, by bringing them into the sort of inner councils of the administration and by really listening to them and also by engaging with them publicly. One thing we, and most of the the period we got a chance to cover was when Ron Klain was, was Biden's chief of staff. And he's someone who we report really forged a lot of relationships with progressives, both throughout his career as a democratic operative, but really also during this period in the general election when they were doing the unity task forces and building the platform. And he had a, a very active online presence and he's like the sort of person who would retreat a Melissa Bernie or another activist who would engage with them publicly, show them uh, the White House's support through his online presence. So I do think there's, there, there's, it's certainly true that Biden works well behind the scenes. And I think the, the major indicator of how deft he is as a, an internal operator is that elected progressive leaders almost unanimously are not challenging him in this in this presidential race. You don't see a primary, aside from figures like Marion Williamson, who's, I think, I think it's fair to say on the fringes of the party, you don't see you don't see really much of any challenge to Biden and progressive leaders like Ro Khanna go to South Carolina to campaign with him, even in the midst of some disagreements they're having over foreign policy. So it is, it's a, a credit to Biden's skill as a, an inside player that he's able to keep elected officials and the sort of party apparatus pretty much entirely on his side. But I think you also have to recognize when you're thinking about the, the youth vote that there is this sort of tendency to speak to the youth vote during campaigns and then to disappoint them in office. And it has a lot to do with the structural problems Hunter was talking about, has a lot to do with the Senate and how much power an administration or, or Democrats as a whole can really wield. But it is something that I think youth voters are increasingly aware of and they're increasingly viewing politics with a jaundiced eye because so many promises have been made to them and only a few have been kept. Rick, do we have you, sir? Yes, thank you very much. This has been great. Uh, I'm looking forward to ordering the book as soon as I get home from my walk and reading it. But yeah, I'm in a purple district of California, lean slightly blue, but right now the leadership in the county is red. And I see four issues that I'm really concerned about. One, of course, is 
uh, the Israel-Gaza um, policies, um, the youth vote um, on the super-progressive vote, and to some extent, the black vote here is very concerned about this and very vocal about it. Then the more moderates, especially because we are a light industrial, there's a military base here, there's a lot of agriculture, the inflation on the home level, you know, the people that don't have money in the stock market, that are paying rent, there's still really issues, a lot of issues with that. And the immigration thing is a concern for many of the moderates. And so I'm wondering if you saw any indication that the techniques that worked four years ago will work to unify the party now that we don't really, there's really no primary. And there's there seems to be a little bit of a sentiment that this is an entitlement for a second term. And so I'd like to get your opinion on that and also on the Senate, if you have any insights on the Senate on how that may go. Thanks so much for the question, Rick. And if you don't mind what I'll do, because I see Dave Jacobson submitted a question here in writing, and I actually think it goes quite well with yours because he said, what about the underrepresented centrists like me in Austin, Texas, since the 90s? If the unity of the Republicans seem to have a, an authoritarian momentum and it has hybridized with white Christian nationalism, what can I do to shake my neighbors from their spell? And I think both of you are bringing up something interesting, which, you know, particularly for anyone listening to this in the UK, I, I think is important to, to touch on. America is such a vast place. And I think we tend to get these oversimplified definitions of individual areas. If you hear the caricature of California, it's just the bluest of blue states and it's super liberal. And that's, I've lived there. I lived there for two years. That's not entirely accurate. And there is a hotbed of Nazism right around the Huntington Beach area and then also more in the rural northern areas. And obviously, we see a lot of these industrial areas that are more purple to conservative. Texas, obviously, a, a very traditionally red state, but it's becoming a lot more diverse. And Austin has always been a blue area. So I think you and David both are touching on the complexity of these areas, the divisions between progressives and centrists. And then as David was saying, the, the quote-unquote spell of Republican disinformation and authoritarianism. And again, I think that goes back to that central dynamic we were talking about before, where Democrats need to stitch this complex, diverse coalition together. And Republicans have abandoned reality. They are following their leader in lockstep. And that coupled with their structural challenges really makes a challenge for Democrats. And, and what I think somewhat answers both of your questions is that as we chronicled all of this behind the scenes work to stitch Democrats together, as we chronicled all of the characters who have their different approaches to this, we did see a lot of division in the party. We did see the full spectrum from DSA to Cuomo. But by and large, almost everyone we spoke to agreed that Donald Trump was a quote unquote existential threat. So as much as we see all of these policy differences and these divisions, 
I think Joe Biden has shown some skill bringing this party together. And I think as he tries to do, he has a major ally in Donald Trump. And it may be that Trump is the best asset he even has. I know we're getting close to the end, and I'm happy to stay longer if you want. But just since we are talking to a somewhat transatlantic audience, I just want to bring up another issue very close to my heart. And I hope everyone is watching the real football in the championship where Leeds United, all, all Leeds, aren't we? We are on the march. We have been through it all together. We've seen our ups and downs. And I know we've got some games in hand, but we're looking at the top two spots, and I think it's only up from here. And I would argue that we've been through it all together. We've seen our ups and downs. Leeds is almost a metaphor for the Democratic Party. And like Joe Biden, they've had some problems, but you can't count them out. Hunter, that bit of speech is not going to make the edit, sir. As a Birmingham City fan, right now, my, my editor's scalpel will get rid of all reference to Leeds United. Hateful football club. We've gone so well until then. It's a conspiracy. You and the refs, sir. Well, you know what? But you, you did add Ted Lasso as your manager, did you, last season? Again, very transatlantic. The first American to manage a, a British football team. Uh, and America has a long history of embarrassing ourselves on the world stage. And I think Jesse didn't help on that front. He didn't do so well. Very tight trousers. That's all I've got to say. Andrea, you have the honor of asking the last question. Thank you. As a fellow dual citizen Brit, an American and an Arsenal fan, I'm going to ask the following question, which is, we see we're in a generational shift. Trump, we've seen Trump back in 2020. We're seeing him now in 2024, where he's not going away. Even if he is defeated at the polls, I think he and his supporters, I think it's fair to say that movement is probably going to continue to wreak havoc and test the limits of American democracy. So my question, after all your wonderful research, and I look forward to buying the book and thank you for this, is how do you see us moving away from elections where we're just trying to provide a contrast between Biden and Trump and moving forward with kind of a better forging a better vision for America, because the number of potential non-Trump voters out there should is, if you include voters who didn't vote, the 82 million who didn't vote or whose vote is suppressed, we should be able to try to forge a new vision for America, though that is complex and it might need to be nuanced and a positive way forward rather than constantly having to contrast with and the choice, you might not like what Biden is doing on this, but the choice to have Trump as a leader will make that worse. So how do you see us moving to more more positive messaging and rightfully touting the accomplishments of the Biden administration in a segmented enough way that the message actually lands and then we can build a brighter messaging and narrative and future for the country? It's, a, it's an excellent question, but it is a vast question, right? The figuring out how to make those turns is a, a sort of fundamental question for American politics. I think we have, we've seen leaders from time immemorial who have these really grand visions of moving our politics forward. And most often, I have to say, they run up against the sort of structural restraints that we read about in the book of U.S. politics, which include the composition of the Senate. They include the way the parties are set up, the two-party system, 
They include the filibuster, a, a non-constitutional sort of tradition in the Senate that really often frustrates the, the larger reforms and and the more progressive reforms that are proposed. So I think there there is a big challenge for leaders to make that sort of change on working through the sort of front door mechanisms of legislation in America. But I think we also see that in American politics, there's a sort of demographic engine of change, which is that as the younger generation gets older, wields its power more effectively at the ballot box, as even more progressive younger voters come up behind them, America does change more gradually than anyone would like, but we are in a far more progressive place now, even with the threat of Trump, which I don't discount at all, than we were even in the beginning of Joe Biden's Senate career when he was negotiating with segregationists who were still on the Senate and still frustrating even more basic civil rights legislation. And I know that's that demographic changes is not a very satisfying answer, but I think that really is the fundamental answer. But I, I do want to say one other thing, which is that I've been really struck by how much the Trump movement is operating through terror in American politics. And I use that word deliberately. There's obviously the terror of January 6th, but there's also, we saw this trial in New York that recently delivered a verdict against Trump, the defamation trial that he faced with Eugene Carroll. And the judge told the jurors who had been, their, not, their names had been sealed in the record, they had been kept completely anonymous. He told them to never tell anyone that they had served on that jury that delivered the verdict against Trump. And I think it's a really profound, a really profound moment where you have the judicial system taking account of the reality that the Trump movement is not just an ordinary political faction that that rises and falls by whether it can turn out its voters and get its representatives to to do what they want in Congress, but also that is just far more threatening than progressives or Democrats are able to muster en masse. We had this story break, this awful story of a man who killed his father and posted an anti-Biden rant on video. And just overnight, we saw that story emerge. And obviously, I've not reported that myself. I'm just reading the press. But I'm, I'm really struck by how this political movement relies on violence and intimidation to achieve its ends. And I think it's worth Democrats who are in power thinking about how to address it as a matter of policy. When you have a growing authoritarian movement in your country, what do you actually do to try to try to leach the poison back out of the system to heal a bit. And I think it is a real profound policy challenge and not one that I've seen addressed in on a federal level to date. I think we're all trying to figure that out on both sides of the Atlantic in every liberal, in inverted commas, democracy throughout the world. The forces of authoritarianism, creeping authoritarianism, liberalism, and which I would say are stoked fundamentally by economic malaise, by, by a fundamental blunting of the, the economic paradigm, which has always been that the next generation is going to be better up. That is fundamentally what is at the core. And then on what it happens all throughout the world is then scapegoating. So you don't actually address the fact that this neoliberal paradigm is actually failing. It's the immigrants. It's always somebody else and whatever. And we are 
battling with that. But let's hope that in America, you find the answer. We also need to find the answer in the United Kingdom. On that point, Hunter Walker, Lupe Lupin, it's been fantastic to have you two gentlemen on the show. Not so much Hunter with his Leeds United rant. So let's just put him to one side. Lupe, you were a fantastic guest, sir. You can come back on again. Thank you for your questions, Rick, Steve, Aram, and Andrea. Say this at the end of every show. Left to center politics is right thinking politics. And I think you have all the reasons why politics is an art and it's a science. This book is fantastic. Hunter, why don't you give us the name of the book and, and maybe tell us just very quickly where people can find you on the social. Then the same question will then go to you, Lupe. I think that was a perfect way to end the conversation because we are seeing literal violence, demonization of immigrants, and really just deranged conspiracy ideologies take root here in America. And our book, uh, The Truce, really captures Democrats as they are wrestling with how to fight that battle and who will lead them next and what message will they have going forward. And it's a fight that I think we can all agree is as crucial as it gets. And I'd like to think that we went in further depth into this side of the conversation than you'll see anywhere else. So you can find the truce wherever books are sold. You can find me on Twitter, <laughs> speaking of speaking of hellscapes at a turning point, at Hunter W. And I'm also on threads at Mr. Hunter Walker. And in my day job, I'm at Talking Points Memo, where I do cover the far right. And I just have to say, I really appreciate this kind of in-depth, intelligent discussion. And I'm actually coming to you guys after two or three hours this morning of listening to conspiracy tapes from the far right. And I just have to say, it's crazier out there than people realize. And it's great to be in here and, and hoping uh, that people pick up this book and consider it going forward. I thought this was a safe space, but we had a Leeds United fan in here. So he's not- I- I'd be mad too after that January 1st thrashing, my friend. <laughs> wow. Yes, I don't want this to devolve. I, as it, I, I will only declare an allegiance to the Dodgers. I imagine no one listens to this podcast has huge baseball opinions, but if you do, I, I apologize. Wait, you know how I feel about that, but we'll drop that there. Yeah. So I'm, I hope everyone reads the book. I, I, we put our hearts into it and I think we got a lot of really interesting stories there. And ultimately we are storytellers and we did our best to bring those skills to the table with this book. I'm, I'm on social media as NYC Southpaw. Twitter, Blue Sky, Instagram, Threads, all the same handle. And I run a newsletter called Paw Prints, which will be reviving soon. It's been a little bit of a hiatus as we promote the book, but we'll, we'll be publishing again momentarily. So thanks very much, uh, everyone. Thanks, thanks really, Phil, for having us. It was a pleasure, and I hope I get to do it again with or without my Leeds United fan partner. Absolutely come back down there and again. Don't, don't even have to ask. Don't know about Hunter. All right, folks, there you go. There's been you Mid-Atlantic. And you've seen me and uh, Lupe and Hunter in full color uh, on, on the YouTubes. And that is specifically for those people who listen to the podcast. So, my goodness, they're on YouTube now. Go subscribe. Go down listen. Look after yourselves. Be good to your family and your friends. Remember, left to center politics is right-thinking politics. And we'll see you all on Friday where we're going to delve into the future of the Palestinian state, the Palestinian people, when the war with Israel is over. And there's just a just to cue that up, the United Kingdom's foreign secretary has 
indicated just in the last 24 hours that the UK is looking at recognition of the Palestinian state. Things are changing. That's going to be a fascinating conversation. Look to see you then. Take care. Bye-bye. Oh, wonderful. Thank you, gentlemen. Really enjoyed that. Even the Leeds United chat wasn't that. You know what? The thing is, Leeds United, they're a pantomime villain side. You do know this, don't It's just, if you're an old fart like me, there are certain teams that you just go, ooh, they send a shiver down your spine. Leeds United, uh, Leeds United at top of that list. There's a certain bracket of just hateful football teams, and Leeds are up there. But so the thing for me is that I'm a New York City boy, so I was a fan of the New York City club, which is how I got into Leeds, because they took our boy Jack Harrison, and I was working with a co-worker who, went, who was uh, a Leeds man, and I was telling him, I was like, you got to watch Jack. And when you're watching Marcelo Bielsa coach football, you just, you're going to fall in love. It's just going to happen, right? But that being said, the interesting thing is that our rivals here in New York are Red Bull, the New Jersey team, which was coached by Jesse Marsh. So that moment was just terrible for me as well on every level. And we can at least agree on that. <laughs> you know what? N- next time we come to, to, to the UK, I'll take you to a temple of football. It's called St. Andrews. It's where Birmingham City play. That is where... And that's... Gosh, we're owned by an American. Tom Wagner and Tom Brady is, is one, of, one of the... Oh, my goodness. The transatlantic parallels abound all over the place. I hadn't even thought about that. I go to my local football stadium. There's stars and stripes now fly over the stadium because it's owned by a bunch of Yanks. Yeah, Leeds do. And if you come to New York, I got you at an NYCFC game. Oh, I, I, listen, 100%. 100%. Well, we'll have to do that. The experience of soccer in a baseball stadium is, I wouldn't say not to be missed, but it's interesting to be seen. <laughs> Listen, everyone in the audience, David, Francine, Keisha, Queen's iPhone, Rick, Steve, and Victoria, Lauren, Victoria Miller, I thank you for joining me. Take care. See you all on Friday. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.